Good morning. Welcome to Redeemer Women's Bible Study. It is a joy to be with you all this morning. Welcome for those who are listening online. We are thankful that you are with us in spirit this morning. Um, I don't know about any of you, but we had basketball on late at our house last night. If you're, this, if you're listening online, this is the Tuesday after the championship. Um, and I will confess that um, I'm from Florida. I've talked about that before, but I, you know, I really didn't understand the true nature of North Carolina until Duke and UNC played each other and just how visceral the love and passion for basketball was here. Um, and, and so for the first time in my life, I did a bracket, did horribly, right? I think I came in like second to last place. But um, on this group text talking about the game last night, somebody from this church, she made some comments about the Jaywalks. No, Jayhawks. But when she said it, right, when she said it, I was thinking, is this just another name for the Tar Heels that I don't know about, right? And so, because I had no idea. And then I started thinking about the Mockingjay from the Hunger Games. Nope. It's Cam Kansas's mascot. Learned that last night during the game. My husband was mortified, mortified. I was like, oh, the Jayhawks. And he goes, oh my gosh, Katie. Sports. Anyway, so here we are on Tuesday morning after that. Um, sorry, about, sorry about UNC. Um, for the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And I just wanted to start off by saying what a joy it has been to walk through this book with you all this year. It has just been so wonderful. And just to spend time in this Gospel that often I feel like I would have skimmed, right? It's the shorter one, not as many details, so we thought. But it's been just so amazing to walk through it with you, realizing how much Mark has shown us and what his the whole goal was that we would know Jesus Christ and that we would know him crucified as the Son of God. And that, you know, from the very beginning, from Mark 1, he said, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here we are at the end of this gospel. And so what, what does that mean for us, right? We're, we're a week before Holy Week in the calendar, right? Next week is spring break, so we won't be meeting, um, but it's, it's Holy Week. And there's going to be Monday, Thursday and Good Friday, which I've always thought was an odd name because it's the day that we, we think about and celebrate. It's kind of the wrong word. Think about the death of Jesus on the cross, which we just talked about last week. But then we're here. We're, then we have Easter weekend, right? And then we have Sunday because Sunday is always coming. And so I love that we're finishing this before Holy Week so that we can really walk into it with the full knowledge of what it means and what it is that as Christians around the globe celebrate Easter. And when we say that we're Easter people, what that truly means. So what is the thing that you can cling to next week that makes it more, even though I love it, about more than about the eggs or a bunny or the pretty pastel dresses or the flowers in the springtime, what Easter actually means. So if you will open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 16, the last chapter, 
we will dive in. Now, it's actually very, very interesting. Um, there's a lot of um, people go back and forth on which parts of this chapter are actually a part of the original gospel that Mark wrote. And so depending on your translation, like my translation even says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. And so some commentaries that I looked at, they ended on chapter, on, on verse 8. They didn't even talk about verses 9 through 20 because there are some people who believe and who would say that the, the original gospel of Mark ends at verse 8. And so this morning we're going to talk about that, but we're also going to talk about the end, the other verses too, because what we, what we know is that even if verses 9 through 20 were in that original text that Mark wrote, they are in the Word of God. Right, And so we know that the word of God, that this is living and active, it is inerrant. There is not a single word of it that is not true or not right or not alive. And so, and I think I've said this before, there are many people who love to dissect the Bible and say that the discrepancies and the differences would make it not true or make it less true. But the reality is, the reality is, is that this whole chapter is in our Bible. And so this whole chapter is speaking truth to us because the whole chapter is the Word of God. So we will look at the whole chapter, but then talk about just why people think that it ends the way it does. Okay, Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, so this is after you know, the, the end of the Sabbath, when the Sabbath had passed, so he's crucified on Friday, Sabbath is Saturday, so the thought is that this would be Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint him, him being Jesus. And very early on that first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So Mary and Mary Magdalene, they get up early and they go to the tomb where Jesus has been buried. Because remember, Mary Magdalene and Mary... They, they saw where he was buried on Friday. Okay, so they saw where he was buried. They go back to this tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone? Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And so the way that the, the tombs worked, and the one specifically where Jesus was buried, it's thought that it was in a cave, so it was down below, it was built in, and then there were these grooves into the ground, and a large stone, it was easy to push the stone down into the grooves, right? I, like, we could probably do it very easily, but it's a large boulder, right, to push it, gravity, to push it back up the grooves, it would take many, many men to do this, right, because it's, they're sealing a tomb. Even back then, you didn't raid where people have been buried, Right? So they're talking about on the way, how are we going to get entrance to the tomb? Because in their minds, Jesus has died. And what we see here, what we see here, what Mark is showing us is he's saying to us, they knew he was dead. The living people do not hang out in tombs. So Jesus was, he was dead in the tomb. Verse four, and looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, letting us know that this would not have been an easy thing to do. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So here we see Mark connecting the one who was crucified as the one who is risen. He is saying there in, in the language, talking about this man in a white robe and their, them being alarmed. In the original language, they were surprised in the way that people throughout scriptures would be surprised at the appearance of an angel. So his white robe was glowing. The word used there for that white, it was a glowing robe. So this was a holy, this was a spiritual experience. They were talking with an angel. And the angel, like the angels when they spoke to the shepherds, do not be afraid. Like the angel speaking to Mary, do not be afraid. This is a heavenly messenger. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. And so Mark, who in chapter 1 tells us this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is speaking of the risen one now at the end of his gospel. See the place where they laid him. Verse 7, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And it's interesting here, he separates out Peter from the other disciples because the last time Peter's name was mentioned was when he denied who Jesus was. So Peter has not been mentioned by name since he denied who Jesus was before he was crucified. And so the angel says, go and tell his disciples, disciples and Peter. There's a kindness in that, a love in that, a grace in that, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you, right? Jesus has been talking about suffering and dying, and in three days I'm going to rise again for a long time but they're still not getting it. They, they still don't quite understand. In verse eight, and they went out and fled from the tomb. And that word fled, they were running with their whole lives. They were fleeing from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, this is where many people would say that the original gospel ends. And it seems odd that Mark would end his gospel with people running from the tomb, astonished and afraid to say anything to anyone. But unfortunately, in our language, in the English language, this word that, they, that, he's, that he's using here when he said when they, were, they didn't say anything to anyone because they were afraid, Mark has used that word all throughout the gospel whenever anyone was amazed by what Jesus did. All throughout the gospel this whole year, whether it be miracle, healing, saving from unclean spirits, the words that Jesus said, people were amazed. When he calmed the storm, the disciples were afraid. But it is this deep, awe and reverence, not this terror from a terror movie, they were absolutely astonished by what happened. 
And the reality is, is that that is the world's response to who Jesus was. Because who Jesus was was the very thing that the whole world since Genesis 3 had been waiting for. But remember, we've said this, the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. This is something new. This is shocking. The crucifixion was shocking. The fact that God said that he would send his son to save a bunch of sinners is shocking. We should be amazed by that. And I think in our culture, because we are so pastel pink and Easter eggs, and oh, Easter's coming and thank goodness it's finally warm. In my mind, Easter is, you know, warmth. It's so easy in our culture to forget, like them, what it actually means. And the most perfect picture that I've ever seen of what, what it was that, that Jesus truly did for us, um, it takes me back to a farm. Of course, horses are involved. Um, and I've told this story once long ago, but we're going to talk about it again. Years ago, I worked on this retirement horse farm. It was a beautiful place up in North Florida, and old horses got to come to this beautiful, beautiful place and live out their days. Often they were rescued from abuse or bad situations. There were old police horses who'd been retired. It was just a magical place. Well, we also had, and I lived there for a summer, we also had a bunch of other random animals that needed a place to live. And so there was this one area of the farm, this bottom, surrounded by a fence, and it went down, and there were beautiful hammock of trees. And in the center of this was a pond, and this is where all of the pigs lived, right? And my boss was Peter. He was a wonderful Englishman. Um, I, you know, I fed the pigs every day, and one day um, I went to feed the pigs, and Bertha that was her name, um, was missing. And Bertha was the largest pig. She was like 400 pounds, huge animal. Um, she wasn't there. It's the middle of summer. So I told him, and he's like, oh, that's just like Bertha, but in his English accent that I won't try and, and mimic. But um, then the next day, she still wasn't there. And Peter's like, okay. The third day, Bertha still wasn't there. And you didn't really like climb the fence and walk amongst the pigs, right? They weren't mean, but at the same time, why would you want to do that? Um, and so Peter's like, okay, well, we got to go look for Bertha. I was like, okay. So Peter and I climb the fence and we, we start walking down into this bottom. And there's also a pack of dogs that lived on the farm. So there were like 15, 20 dogs who like followed us over the fence. And um, we, we get down and it was middle of July in Florida, hot, steamy. And, but with the hammock of trees and the water, it created this mist effect, right? Almost like something straight out of the Lord of the Rings. And uh, we walk, or Harry Potter, and so we walk down to the pond covered with duckweed, which is this little tiny green, so the water's green, and there's mist. And Peter and I step up, and the dogs, they, they all step up to the pond with us. And we look out into the middle of the pond, and there was Bertha floating. She had died probably three days before. And, um, and I, I think immediately, this is perfect. She's died in the middle of the pond. Nature can do its thing. We can just leave her there. It's going to be fine, right? Well, Peter says, well, we got to get her out. Because I'm thinking, well, why don't we just leave her in the pond, right? It's, she, it's a water burial. It's fine. 
but apparently it would be bad for the water for something this big and dead to decompose in it. So we go and get the tractor with this whole thing, right? We go and get the tractor, and Peter climbs down off the tractor. We have shovels, and, he's, and he, like, he hands me this rope. And I'm terrified thinking that I'm going to have to walk out into this pond to get the pig. But he takes the other end of the rope and ties it around his waist. And then he hands me, you know, I'm holding the other end. He's like, don't let go. <laughs> okay? And so Peter, this fine English gentleman, starts walking out into this pond with this 400-pound dead pig, or what was left of her. And he goes out. The dogs follow him, which is d disgusting detail. The dogs follow him, and he reaches down, and he ties the rope around her body, which, like, we're talking, like, he was, like, all up. He was hugging Bertha. And, and I'm standing there just, like, be cool, right? You can do this. Like, you're a strong young woman. Like, you can, you're going to, you can do this, Katie. And so he, like, sludges back through all the slime, climbs up on the tractor and says, okay, pull her in. I'm like, what? So I start pulling Bertha in. And when I can still smell it, when that wave of death, stench of death, hit me, I almost fell over. She'd been dead for three days in Florida in a pond, right? 400 pounds. So I'm pulling her in, but then when he, he, got, he like got excited about what we were doing, he moved the tractor onto the rope. So I could no longer pull from like far away from Bertha. So he tells me to go in the front of the tractor. So I pull Bertha in, but then we can't get her into the bucket. So then I have to like push her in, into the tractor. Didn't look like a pig anymore. And anyway, we get, we get her in the tractor, and the last image I have of Bertha is Peter going up this hill, holding her up, almost like, you know, an offering, and all of the dogs running after the tractor, and he goes and buries her. Peter, I was, I was allowed to take the rest of the day off. He and I both went and took naps. It took me two days to recover. And you're like, well, Katie, why are you telling me this disgusting story? Well, the reality is, is that I thought that just leaving Bertha in the water would have been fine. But Peter knew that it would have made the water source bad. And it would have been a place for flies to just, we already had a fly problem, right? And so then I thought I was going to have to go in and get her, right? I thought I was going to have to go in and get, and get the death out. And Peter knew that I couldn't do it, right? And I'm okay with him knowing that I was unable to do that because I couldn't have done it. And so Peter walks out into that water and he handles the death, right? After it had been dead for three days. All, all of the things are there. But the reality is, is that there is something dead in every single one of us apart from Christ. But the thing, the, the part of this, of this story that's slightly off theologically, it's not that you have death floating in you apart from Christ, it's that we actually are Bertha. We actually are completely dead 
apart from Jesus Christ. Every person, C.S. Lewis, every person you meet is an eternal being, right? You are either eternally dead or eternally alive. And so I tell this shocking, disgusting story because the reality of the gospel is shocking, right? It's shocking what he actually did for us. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses, in sins in which you once walked following the course of the world. Apart from Christ, we would all be doing horrible, horrible things. But the reality is, is that even the small things that I think are meh, fine are also worthy of death. Because the wages of all sin within our bodies Ever since Genesis 3, from our heads to our toes, our bodies are even fallen. That's why people get cancer. It's because our bodies are fallen. That's why we get addicted. That's why there's pornography. That's why the alcohol and cigarettes and drugs take over, because we're fallen. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of air back to the great spiritual battle that's going on all the time. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among who we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature, by nature, by your DNA, by who you are. We were children of wrath. The wrath that got poured out, that cup that Jesus drank, we were children of that wrath just like the rest of mankind. So think of the worst human being you can think of were the same thing apart from Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were deader than Bertha, right? Because she was just physically dead. She was a physically dead pig. We were eternally wretched. We were eternally rotting. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. The gospel is shocking. By grace, you have been saved, not because you were perfect, not because we were so wonderful, right? By grace, you've been saved and raised up with him and has seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved through faith. This has nothing to do with what you're doing. It's a gift from God, right? It's shocking what he did for us. The gospel is shocking. He goes on to say in Colossians 13, uh, 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So he canceled the fact that we used to be dead. He became death for us, nailed it to the cross. And in doing this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Think of the spectacle of Satan, the crosses. What a spectacle it made of him. He, he lost. 
And he triumphed. Jesus has triumphed over the darkness. That, that is the shocking truth of the gospel. It should take our breath away. It should make us, like Mary Magdalene and Mary, take pause. Right? And so when, when, when Mark ends it here saying that they were afraid, they were astonished. Because the man, the one that they loved, who they knew had died, had risen again. He'd risen again. And so we move into this section now where some would say it's not a part of the original book, but it is a part of the Word of God. And what I love about this section is that it shows us that the disciples still didn't get it, which gives us grace, right, as we stumble along trying to get it. Verse 9, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from, with whom, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. So they are, they are sitting in a room mourning and weeping, and Mary Magdalene goes and tells them this good news. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Think about what they witnessed right? He had been scourged, flesh ripped, and crucified on a cross, and everyone talked about how quickly he died, right? Think about if somebody was like, well, he, even if someone said, hey, I'm going to rise again, the, to wrap our minds around the reality of this truth, I want them to believe, but I also kind of get it, Right? especially with how much sometimes I don't listen to what he says. And so Mary, she, she tells them that he's alive, but they don't believe. Verse 12, after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them, and they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. Remember, Judas is gone. And he rebuked them for their unbelief. How many messengers was it going to take of the good news for them to get it? And so for us, how many times do you need to hear the good news to believe and know that you know that he has rescued you? How many times do you need to hear this to know that you don't have to save yourself? Not only that, but you can't. He rebuked them for their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into the world, go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name, they will cast out demons they will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. These are all things that we see happening in Acts and throughout the New Testament. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them and was taken up into the heaven and sat down, he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message 
by accompanying signs. So we see this, the deep grace of Jesus. And so, yes, he rebuked them for their unbelief, but I dare say that if he, if I was, if he was standing in front of me, he would say, Katie, would you just trust me, right? Would you just trust me? But there's such grace in the fact that he still sends them out, right? He still sends them out to preach the what? The gospel. And so what we see, even though it's so easy to knock the disciples, what we see is that human perfection is not a requirement to speak the truth or live the gospel. Because isn't it the gospel that humans aren't perfect and actually need the truth? And so if anything, when we show our weaknesses and when we show just how truly he has saved us, that that speaks a better word of who God is and what kind of king he is than if we acted like we were perfect. Because whoever you're talking to knows that they're not perfect and however much they know you, they might know that you're really not perfect, right? The truth of the gospel is that there is grace for imperfection. That's why we needed the gospel. And so as we go into this Easter week, as we head towards Sunday, my hope is that you would be able to hold, to tangibly hold on to this truth of who he is and what he's done for us. Because in truth, in Colossians, it says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things. Everything that you think is shattered, he holds even that together. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Right? He became death for us, so that the only death we'll experience it's temporary. It's physical. It is not eternal. We're not living in that gross, stinking pond where in reality we are the death floating in it. That's not our reality in Christ. He became that for us that we might be full of life. He did this so that in everything he might preeminent, be preeminent, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's sitting at the right hand of God. And the kings who sit are the ones who are victorious. They are no longer at battle. A seated king is a victorious king. And Mark tells us he is seated at the right hand of God. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he lives 
to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7.25. So Jesus is living to make intercession for you now. So whatever doubt, whatever stumbling block, whatever night terror you have, he is living and breathing at the right hand of God, interceding for you that you might draw near, that you might bust through those throne room doors and run right up to the throne. Because you are a daughter of the great high king. He is the firstborn, but through him we are co-heirs. Through him you say, Abba, Daddy, when you walk into that throne room. Because you have eternal life in him, and that, that is the gospel. So draw near to him. Because he is already speaking your name to the Father. We pray. Dear Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you for these sweet friends and this year that you've given us. I just pray that you would bless them, that you would be with us in our going out and our coming in, that you would make our hearts even hungrier for your word, that the only thing that would truly satisfy us would be you. And Lord, I just pray that as we walk into the Holy Week and towards Easter, that we would know that we know that we are Easter people, that we are your daughters, and that when you look at us, you see your son, and that we would just, our minds would be blown, and that we would just be astonished by all that you have done and that you are doing in our lives. Amen. Thank you, ladies. <laughs>